Welcome to the Successful Farming Podcast. I'm David Ekstrom. On today's podcast, we sat down with Robert Jones of the Diamond Bar Ranch near Stapleton, Nebraska. Now, 121 years later, the ranch is home to the family's fourth and fifth generations. Robert and his wife Suzanne are the owners and operators, and their four children pitch in full-time or part-time. Before we hear the story of Diamond Bar Ranch, we would like to thank our sponsor, Massey Ferguson, a proud supporter of Century Farms and those building a lasting farming legacy. Hello, I'm Darren Parker, Vice President of Massey Ferguson North America. And on behalf of everyone here at Massey Ferguson, I'd like to congratulate every Century Farm. We build straightforward and dependable equipment for farms like these and people like you. The people working hard to build something that lasts. The people who were born to farm. So from all of us at Massey Ferguson, thank you for inspiring us with your hard work and dedication. Enjoy the podcast. At Massey Ferguson, we're proud of our 175-year history of straightforward and dependable machinery. We're proud to build tractors and hay equipment that help feed the world year after year. But most of all, we're proud to support farmers. Always have been, always will be. Check out our entire lineup of farmer-first tractors, equipment, and implements today at MasseyFerguson.com or visit your local dealer to learn more. And now, back to the podcast. I'm Robert Jones, uh, named after my grandfather, Robert Baskin, and we've lived here in Stapleton all our life. Are you the fourth generation on the on the ranch? Yeah, I'm fourth generation. On my mom's side, um, she was the oldest daughter of the Baskin, uh, Robert Baskin family. But the man who started it was Wallace Baskin, my great grandfather. So that was in the in 1901, correct? Yeah, he bought the place in 1901. So what was the story of him buying the the ranch in 1901? Oh, he. Uh, had a chance to buy it from these two homesteaders. They were brothers, the Jensen brothers from Denmark. And there was two homesteads. He bought one in McPherson County and one in Logan County. And there was some 900 head of cattle and these two homesteads with some grazing around it and some wild horses. And that's what he'd kind of been doing is selling horses when he wasn't cutting meat in a meat market, but he sold the meat market in North Platte to uh, buy these two homesteads. They were from Gentrip, Denmark, and they went home millionaires with their 30,000, you know, at that time. They went back to Denmark. So did they um, Did they ever come back after they went back to Denmark? No. Whether they just felt they'd hit it rich, they'd been here long enough to secure those places and make them functional you know so then um what happened on the ranch after 1901 and and then the early 1900s well at the time they you know put up hay and um that was quite an undertaking in itself but it served the purpose of getting the cattle through the winter and then Later on, when the railroad came to Stapleton, it wasn't a town. It was just a tent city in 1912, but it just boomed up and they built a lot of houses and everything in a period of a year, you know, to complete the town. So then he was able to sell hay 
on the railroad, bail it right there next to the railroad, and they could send it back east. Or the other thing that made it nice is he didn't have a lot of cattle, so he could take cattle in to help pay for more pasture he wanted to buy up. And so he could cattle could come in on the railroad summer and then go back home in the winter. Just to give listeners a picture of, can you describe what the ranch is like, where it's at? Yeah, along the South Loop River Basin, it was one of the greenest places in all the country around. And it still is because it's sub-irrigated meadow ground. I think, you know, the Indians at the time camped in this area in the winter. There's some accounts where they stole horses from Cottonwood Springs, which is today Maxwell. They were tracked down up in this area and they got the horses back. But the Indians played an integral part in making this country whole, you know. What do you think was the the reason why they settled on the Stapleton area? It was a place away from the Platte Valley, you know, and had some privacy and it still does today. There was a lot of good forage and surrounding hills that were suitable to cattle. Uh, my great-grandfather being a horseman and and cattleman in a way because he cut a lot of meat in North Platte at this meat market and would sell it to Buffalo Bill to go on the train to Wild West shows. And, and so that was kind of his meat market start. But the Railroad connection, my great-great-grandfather would be a William Baskin. They came to Junction City, Kansas from New York State. There's Finger Lakes in New York State, and there's a Baskin point on one of those Finger Lakes. And they decided to move from there because they was getting some pressure from Indian raids from the north, and they felt safer along the railroad Junction City, Kansas. So that railroad connection's always been there. He took up the job running trains, and then they kind of worked their way to North Platte because they wanted help running the big boiler trains in North Platte. And so my great-grandfather, Wallace Baskin, being the son of this engineer, thought that there was a lot of opportunities around North Platte um, growing up, and, and he always eyed this northern country because he'd, you know, round up horses and sell them in his spare time with his uncles. His uncles were Abe and Marshall Berry from down south of Wellfleet. And he actually um, had a homestead in Wellfleet before he bought these up here. So that was a method of being able to buy these homesteads up here. So he found the perfect place, as you would say, where he wanted to locate. What, what was the backstory of the name Diamond Bar Ranch? My grandpa kind of evolved the brand from the first homestead purchases. It was actually called the Diamond Bar uh, Lake in McPherson County. The symbol was kind of an open arrowhead with the arrow above and below and a bar vertical in between. And he just kind of closed that two V's or arrowheads together and then put the bar out to the side. I think in a way it was maybe kind of a, Indian sign for this area. I don't know. I can't research that. If I ever get a snippet from some old timers, I try to find out more. Um, so 
it has nostalgia to it. What do you think life was like back back then? You know, selling on the ranch and in the area with all the other pressures in the in the nation at the time. You know, I think they were pretty well um, adept with people because in North Platte, living along the rail line, pretty civilized. You know, he had the best of both worlds. He understood what happened out here in the open country as well as in town, you know, having that railroad connection. So very business-minded. He kind of looked like a city slicker. He dressed in a short-brimmed hat and always a tie. And people would think, oh, he can't round those horses up. But when he bought this place, he said, you just get him started towards the Corral again. And when the mayor, the lead mayor came to the Corral gate and started to turn off the herd, he shot her dead right in the gate and all the horses went right over the top of her right in the Corral. And um, he bought horses from, by Oregon, the Umatilla Indian Reservation and trailed them back home um, to Wellfleet and then would keep training and breaking them and sell them as far east as Nebraska City with his two uncles. He was kind of like the kid, um, the trouble, the trialsome kid with his uh, two older uncles, but he learned a lot in those days. You've been on the ranch your whole life then, right? That's correct. What was it like when, when you were a child? Do you remember some of the some of your relatives? Were they around? Yeah, I was fortunate to always have my grandfather here. Never saw my great-grandfather Wallace, but have heard all the stories. I try to keep them in my mind. Um, we've wrote a lot of them down, but when I was growing up, my dad ramped up the cattle operation quite a bit. Even when I was in college, he was, you know, adding numbers and doing conservation practices, but he would never realize what we've done today. So maybe talk a little bit about what you've done today. I know you have a red and black Angus operation. So maybe talk about like what, what uh, you have on the ranch now and, and uh, what keeps you busy. So over the last 20 years per se, um, since I graduated from college, might be more than that. Um, we've added cross fences, put in more water installations. Um, and just in the last 10 years, we've had to start cutting uh, cedar trees. But we've increased our stocking capacity almost 40% with the same meadows and winter forage. Um, just by high level increase of rotating the cattle through the pastures faster. And we've got the water supply a little better. I foresee it even being more uh, water supply being developed because the windmills are kind of erratic and it throws you out of your pattern when there's no wind. Um, we've already instituted several of these solar wells and one solar well with a like a three-panel system, a variable speed submersible, pumps as much as two three-inch windmills. So we have some places where we have two windmills pumping into the same tank. And, of course, that 30-foot tank overflows to another 30-foot tank. But we don't have to have as much volume storage with the solar. It just... You know, one 30-foot tank and a solar well usually will take care of three, 400 cows 
um, no problem. So you have a lot of a lot of tech on your ranch. It sounds like with the solar panels and and uh, other conservation practices. Right, right. Not too bad. Um, and of course, we've diversified. We we farm a few acres. It's pivots that we started putting in. My dad started putting a couple in in 1976 was our first irrigation. Those pivots are still T&L pivots, the same ones we put in. You have to fix an oil leak once in a while and yeah, uh, keep them going. They're a little, as you would say, long in the tooth, but they still do the work. But we've added a couple pivots here in the last five years. Um, in fact, we have some irrigated acres okay that we can uh, expand on. So we're going to do another pivot this next spring. The cost of drilling the well has gone up quite a bit, um, like from 50000 last year, steel and the pump, it's going to be 65000 or more for the one well. It'll only serve us 70 acres, but it'll give us uh, uh, some more forage. You know, we really see it in a drought like we are now to get our cows through the winter because we've elevated our numbers with our pasture rotation. You know, our grass is in better shape than it ever was. We see, you know, a lack of grass this year with the drought, but, you know, if we get rains, it'll come right back. We've got good quality species out there. Um, so it just takes the pressure off of our sandhill grazing to have a, some forage crops. We, we rotate through corn just so we can break alfalfa out. But that protein source is helping us a lot. Um, and some cover crops we utilize if the timing is right. What kind of cover crops are you using? Well, we'll go back in with rye or a teff grass. And, and sometimes we plant corn and, and, and right as soon as the corn's planted, we'll go back in and plant Sudan right on top of it. And that'll be something that we can chop. It gets pretty thick. As long as it doesn't fall down, it'll go through the chopper head. Are cover crops fairly new for you or have you been using them for a while? Oh, we've always used them to a certain extent. Some years it seems like there's a lot of costs associated to putting that cover crop in the seed and drilling it and with fuel prices the way they are. And then you end up maybe not getting it grazed off as good as you want. And so then we go to, to plant corn again, you've got to knock that cover crop down somehow. But in the long run, it holds the soil and we're pretty sandy. So, yeah. So what's it like um, farming and ranching in the sand hills? We just have to be careful of not beating out a road where the wind will blow it. You know, you try to go perpendicular to the wind with some of your roads, your access points. It, the more you study it, you figure out how to stop erosion and and make it work. And most of our farming is located right next to either Highway 83 or Highway 92. The majority of the ranch never sees much traffic. It's just frontage along the highway. So in that respect, I can applaud my great-grandfather for the location. You know, location, location, it makes the place worth a lot more. Oh, yeah, definitely. So I saw on a, on your Facebook page, there was a video that you're... Um, uh, planting trees on your ranch is that that's something you've been doing the past years or just building on what was here before 
a lot of our trees were planted in the Roosevelt era, Workman's Progress Administration. And so we have big tree strips to cab behind now. And then we just have kept adding to that because we realized the value that they have, you know, they're timeless. You can't replace them overnight, you know. We've had a lot of wind damage this last year. Even our little cabin sheds, the wind sucked the skylights out or ripped tin off that got to flipping, you know. And so they just, you can't build that back up and keep it maintained as easy as the tree strip. All you have to do is keep it fenced off and, and you've got protection for your cattle. It's automatic, you know. Some of that old school stuff you can't beat. So we've just planted what we could afford each year or something that we could plant, you know, a little quarter mile strip here and there where it really stopped some erosion or provided that secondary protection after we pair calves out. And you just see the progress is trees, you know, three foot high, then six foot high. And then you've got a, you know, full blown 20 foot high windbreak, you know, the course of 25 years, we planted some 35,000 trees. Oh, wow. Did you plant all those yourself or do you have help come in? We planted a lot of them by hand, just put a shelf on the ground side to side and, and put the tree root in there with the main root facing north. It seems like that's, but then we started using the upper loop NRD to plant them for us and they'll put them in the barrier if you have some areas that are trafficked, some weed pressure, you know, but we actually was able to purchase their old tree planter that kind of rolled the sod out and it creates a little space for new trees to get started without that sod pressure. And they can't put barrier down behind that because it clumps up the sod, but it works for us. So we just can put it behind a little tractor on the three point and the bell will ding if you plant the tree and you can just plant five or six rows and quarter mile long and less than a couple hours. Pretty efficient then. It is. It is. After this short break, Robert talks about how his family are involved in the operation. Farming can bring a new challenge each and every day. But you didn't get into this life for predictability. You were born to farm. And so was the Massey Ferguson 6S Series tractor. With the power, traction, and maneuverability to tackle everything from field work to transport, loading, and yard operations, the MF6S Series is the perfect partner, even when you don't know what the day will bring. Learn more today at MasseyFerguson.com. And now, back to the podcast. Maybe we'll talk a little bit about uh, your family that's on the ranch now and what everybody's role is. Yeah, we've been relying a lot on my family, I guess, having um, some help hired to do a job is not always the housing or their location. If they don't live in town, then it takes them a while to drive up here. And there's lots of times we're working, you know, in the night, calving or, or baling hay in the middle of the night to get the leaves. So my family is resilient. They can jump out and be ready to go if the time needs it. So the girls bale hay or, or rake. and We've mowed and stacked a lot of hay with sweeps. They do that. We kind of got away from it the last couple of years because it's been dry. We just 
baled up everything. We made a few stacks just so we have something to feed in a heavy snow because we can get eight ton on a sled and feed it in a half hour. You know, if you're feeding around bales six at a time, it, you might have to go back to the yard twice and just takes more time. Then you have to open the gate, try to get through without the cows running out. You know, one person can go in the gate once with a stack and you're done, you know. You could say we're a hay-type ranch, but we rely on that quite a bit to keep our cows in condition. And it takes the pressure off the range because you're feeding hay later in the spring when they're calving, and um, you don't have to go to grass as soon. So some of that cool season has a chance to come on. But all of those things, the kids work with me and my wife also. And you have four kids? Yeah, two older girls and then two boys. And so we've relied on my family pretty heavy to keep all the stuff going. What uh what do you think that um your your whole family's working together? How does that make you feel and for the future of the ranch and, and you're just your day to day working? It makes me feel pretty proud. The best way is though to get them all started on different jobs so they're not arguing between themselves and more gets done when you have one or two go this way and one or two go the other way. Yeah. But need be, we can all work together. And, you know, we brought in our herds this fall and sorted them, you know, within a couple hours, cows and calves off and makes it work. What has been some of your biggest challenges on the ranch, maybe in the past or maybe now? Oh, just covering all the bases that we make sure we get all the activities done and the timely you know, we hire some of our corn planting and machine work done. So just lining that up and getting somebody to do it. So our big activities, like our own uh, putting up hay, we try to have the machinery do that ourselves. Because we feed the hay in the winter, we have the tractors and equipment. We just as well utilize them in the summer. But then the finances... Every time you get a new piece of equipment, you've got to make the payments on them. Um, but we've been fortunate. The machinery holding up. And, and sentimental as we are, we still hang on to the old machinery. So we've got, you know, the old Super H that we rake with the dump rake, you know, still in the shed and the slide sacker and the sweeps and the sickle mowers and we don't even use the cosh mowers, but we've got them folded up and parked in the shed. So they could be resurrected and you could at least trim around in the yard. So I know you mentioned a little bit about some of the conservation tech you have. Have you implemented any tech in your machinery, any precision technology? Oh, or Yeah, some of the things we're using now is um, a feed program. It's kind of... Uh, on a web base of like performance beef. So you can load your uh, feed and your uh, have an iPad and your payloader and it records everything you load and feed to the calves. And then on that performance beef, they have a performance ranch now that we're kind of testing or looking at that records all of your cow information. We do have a tractor for when we do tillage. We do our own disking or tillage so there's some auto steer and a one tractor we have. Um, I use Excel a lot for uh, 
different things. Sure. My daughter has helped me set up a Google Drive account. So I've got a few years of that under my belt with everything stored in one place that you can share or have someone else help edit with you. So yeah, yeah those things are all handy. Yeah. So then um, with the business, then are you, are you selling beef nationwide or, or keeping it in Nebraska area? We're background in our calves late into February and sell them on superior at like seven weights. Um, but we've have retained a few of our top end steers or maybe some of our lightweight steers and finish two different little groups and then sell those individual beef, um, freezer beef. I kind of helped the girls through college with some of, they've got jobs, but they uh, helped with their tuition and helped them with get it a vehicle payment so they can take their little Jeep Cherokee or whatever and put a beef or two in it and deliver it to Lincoln or Omaha or and take it right to the door of the person buying it. So, oh, yeah. And it was kind of fun to learn all the ins and outs of what different people want, what kind of cuts they want. I'm sure. So what's, what's it like dealing with the the modern day consumer with their, their own um, choices and, you know, most of the time they're just ecstatic to have good quality beef, you know, that's packaged and easy to use, you know, the hamburger packages or uh, no matter what happens, uh, usually they're ecstatic to get it. I should add, we, we have some, Years where we've had a lot of rain, we have taken in some bred heifers or some spade yearling heifers um, to help cover our expenses a little more. And so learning to deal with taking cattle and um, taking care of them has been a new experience for me. We've always run our own cattle. I think we're poised this next few years. We've retained a lot of open heifers and rebred in fall so we've we've kind of grown our herd to fit our range per se but this drought is kind of crowding us a little but even with the severe three-month drought that we um, experienced in our logan county this year i think we can retain our numbers unless we have another drought you know back to back we'll probably have to cut back is the Ogallala Aquifer your water source? Yes. Um, our water table is real close to the surface, so you know our windmills don't have to pull very far, or the solars. Of course, every year in the fall, you can see the, the springs and the meadows, even with this severe drought, are starting to flow. You know, the water's pushing up that water gradient from the north towards the South Loop River. We have a tremendous water gradient. It's just pushing the water up. I have an irrigation well that's, you know, flowing like two 60 pound garden hoses. It's shooting out the air holes. Um, in the wintertime, I try to let it free flow so it don't freeze and damage, you know, push up in the center pivot point. I eliminate it, you know, if we don't have the freeze damage, I can put corks in those air holes and slow it down, but it's kind of coming under the casing and the pump. Now 
we can actually water cows at the pivot point because it's shooting water out all the time. It's like an artesian. Yeah. So you're in the process of winterizing things, it sounds like. Well, yeah, we should. It's coming. We just got our first snowfall. So, um, yeah, I think we're done picking corn and we uh, have some diesel engines that I'll probably make sure the stove pipe is covered and keep the water out. Is this a busy time of year for you going into winter? Yeah, it seems like it's a scramble every day to get the cows situated and we'll start supplementing on that dormant range up in the far hills on the cows with a cubed cake. Uh, usually we don't start till about the 20th of November because we still got green grass up in the hills, that undergrowth. It's kind of pasture that we've left vacant all summer, you know, stockpile of forage. So the cows got plenty to eat, but they'll dig in the lower bottom of that switchgrass and find green, you know. So they're getting their protein source if they're a smart cow and and go out and dig for it. Yeah. yeah. Might have to encourage them a little bit. Yeah. We try to drag them around more with that cube cake into a better place, you know. Um, use it as a same way with our salt mineral. Um, we place that in strategic points you know, away from the windmill and that kind of draws the cows out to graze in a corner because they go to after the salt. But same way with the cube cake, we try to drag them to a place where they need to be, you know. So we'll try to keep those cows in the hills till 10th of January. We usually get a January thaw, we call it, somewhere around that time. And then we can get them back home and um, we've backed our calving date up since that cyclone bomb that kind of happened a couple years ago. Um, we had six or eight inches of snow on the ground, then got five or six inches of rain. So we had a major flood. Oh, wow. The river is usually only about two feet wide, the South Loop River, and flowing about a half a foot deep, but it was about 40 yards wide and six foot deep. Oh, wow. <laughs> I can't imagine the amount of water that came from nowhere. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So what do you, what do you do when you, when you see that extreme change? Oh, we lost our major bridge north of our house in town and we crossed that with hay and feed and, and had to go that, you know, around over the highway bridge and over, you know, a couple miles of pasture to get, back to where we wanted to go. We just started parking stuff on the north side of the river and we was able, after the water went down a little bit, we was able to take a, a ranger across the water and then get in our tractor and go feed. So this sounds like a challenge that you've had. Well, what's like an I ideal day on the ranch for you, if, if that if that even exists? Oh, yeah. Oh, the ideal, you know, um, everything's out to pasture and and your crops are growing, you just kind of can make a few little spot checks to see if you're, um, everything's in order and you're good to go. The water is all, uh, tanks are full, so that would be idea. That sounds pretty good. My dad flew a lot um, every morning 
I did growing up. We'd get up in the plane and you could check 50 or 60 windmills in a half an hour. You know, you'd know what water you have. We became, you know, I guess I eliminated a lot of that worry by upgrading our tanks and adding more windmills and water so we don't have that trouble like we used to have of knowing what water is what. So, but it was a lot of fun flying and just seeing the country. And I'm going to try to get back to that if I get the chance. What uh, do you think is the future, the future holds for the ranch and where do you see your kids taking the ranch in the future? Yeah, I think we're going to maintain all those. And we have all along our history our old school practices intermeshed with our new practices. Um, we'll, you know, up update and elevate our nutrition. So these cows are producing to the best of their ability. We've kept our cow size fairly moderate, but it's hard to do. And the quality of what we can market to the people, I think it's all worth it. And, you know, if we didn't have these crazy ins and outs and challenges, we wouldn't have any fun. So we're all up to that challenge. The way we brought up the kids um, with their work ethic, they enjoy it now. You know, we want to update our buildings and facilities and make everything just happen like it should. It's it's a challenge, but that's what our goal is. Any Any lessons you've learned along the way? Oh, yeah. Lots of hard lessons. Um, I think the the biggest thing is to be fair and honest and do what's right. You know, even if it it takes a little more out of your pocket, uh, you got to have the nutrition on the cows. You've got to take care of your crops so you get the production. And we utilize the the community a lot, you know, our neighbors, if they have equipment, they can come in and custom pick. Uh, we use them, you know, they need help too. If you could go back and uh, talk to some of your older relatives that, um, that have since passed, what, what questions would you ask him? I probably want to know what it was really like in the old West, I think. Um, you know, they rode the trains and the stagecoaches, but then they also covered the miles horseback, you know, and it'd be fun to retrace their steps from, you know, east of Pendleton, Oregon back. Uh, we had a little bit of a trip this summer. We sold cattle in Sheridan and, and kind of followed along down the Platte River, but it it would be fun to see all what they experienced and have a little more insight on that. Any advice you'd want to give your, your children for the future as they continue on your legacy? Oh, I keep telling the family, you know, find yourself a suitable bride or find yourself a suitable husband and, and make your marriage last, you know, it, there's a lot of power in a family structure. We've relied on it heavily you know, through the years, pretty proud of our heritage, but this country's great. We've got to take care of it and be productful and, and resourceful and produce the food that, and the fiber that this country needs and all the technology to save our resources. 
is pretty important and we're trying to utilize it and then just the whole community structure we need people that work together and have faith and and belief in a good education so concentrated my efforts and being on an ESU 16 board where we provide some services that a public school can't like speech pathology or some teaching and learning methods to to bring some kids up to a level faster. We do have a little chance here in late November to go to a, one of those state conventions and go to a Husker game and It'll be my birthday, 17th of November, so we'll celebrate a little. Yeah. Maybe like the fall work's done. Watch out, here comes winter. This podcast was brought to you by Massey Ferguson, who has been building the equipment for those born to farm for 175 years. Thank you to Robert Jones for being our guest. You can read more about the Diamond Bar Ranch in the November issue of Successful Farming and on our website, agriculture.com. For Successful Farming, I'm David Ekstrom.